Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. Uh, my name is Kristen Harcourt. Uh, I'm an executive coach, uh, leadership coach, and I have a passion for humanizing the workplace and transforming leaders. I created this podcast to have conversations with progressive CEOs, strategic HR leaders, and forward-thinking experts that really want to create positive work cultures. So I'm extremely excited for our guest today. I'm going to be speaking with Mark C. Crowley. Mark is the author of Lead from the Heart. Uh, Mark and I met five years ago and had this shared passion of what it looks like to lead from the heart and to humanize the workplace. So I'm really excited for the discussion today. Thank you, Kristen. Nice to be here. Uh, so Mark, let's get right into it. As a starting point, I, I'm calling this podcast is called Inspirational Leadership. And I want to hear from you. What does inspirational leadership mean to you? Inspirational leadership means that people are inspired inherently, right? And that's exactly what people aren't in most cases today. We have our report cards as leaders, whether you look at job satisfaction scores, or you look at engagement scores, or you look at the extraordinary turnover that's occurring, at least in American businesses. It's a clear indicator that people aren't inspired. And so you start to dig into what are the reasons for it, and, and it all boils down to our ideas about management and how we seek to inspire people are actually backfiring on us and doing more harm to people and organizations than good. So as you know, my principal argument is the only way we're going to get a difference in that report card, the only way that we're going to get people truly inspired to go to work instead of dreading it is, or worse, is to fundamentally change how we lead. And even, and we can dig into this if you'd like to, but choosing different kinds of people for management roles, mm -hmm. we're in a totally different era we, we people just can't work any longer for dictatorial micromanaging or or really truly managers that just don't care about them as human beings and their well-being and their growth and their development and how they're feeling at any one given point in time about their work that's the big gap in whether or not we're going to be inspiring people or not in their jobs mm-hmm so you and I both believe in this and, and we're trying to help other people understand why this is so important. Um, so let's start off with what you just what you just said there. Why do you think we have uh, so much of a challenge of people who are in leadership that don't know how to lead like this? Because we haven't given people permission to manage in the way that we recommend. And what that means is, is that we have been passing along an idea, a methodology, if you will, a collective idea set of here's how you manage people. And I think it's predicated on the assumption that people won't work well and they won't work hard and they won't do as much work unless you closely monitor them, you know, direct them, supervise them, and keep them in some degree of fear, right? So we start off with that as a premise that's completely inconsistent with where the 21st century workforce is. People go to work, not just for money, but because they wanna be fulfilled by it. They wanna do something meaningful. They wanna make a contribution to something that's greater than them. And they also wanna work for somebody who's their advocate, somebody who looks out for them, somebody who nurtures them and wants to see them grow. And interestingly enough, we've historically promoted people into management roles who in, in, 
unintentionally or intentionally compete directly with the people they're managing. Right. So rather than right, so rather than feeling like you've got this person who's your coach, who's your mentor, wants the best for you, you're always looking over your shoulder, thinking, "My manager, does he have it out for me? You know, is it because you just it's a feeling, right? There's just like something missing there, and that advocacy is missing largely because we have never really taught managers that that's a fundamental part of their success as a leader. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, and I think you and I have talked about this before, Mark. Um, you know, sometimes it's it's easy to to blame the the leaders, but a lot of times they're not getting the support. They don't know what they don't know, right? So they're an individual contributor. All of a sudden, they get into leadership. They're like, "Oh, people, humans, I have to do all this. I, I'm not really sure how to navigate this." And from my experience, I, I do think a lot of organizations are not providing the support and resources um, to help leaders be their best. Um, the other thing that, that shows up for me, and I'd love to hear your take on this, is that I, I, I see a lot of organizations that are, um, they've got the, the box of the, the exercise and they're doing the checkbox and values check. Purpose, check. Vision, check. And then when you actually look in the organization and see what it looks like to have values and live and breathe those behaviors, um, it, it's not happening. Uh, a lot of times leaders at the top are those ones who are actually very guilty of not living and breathing those behaviors. And, and then there's no accountability for it. Um, I, I'm curious from your perspective, where do we start um, to, to help organizations understand what it looks like to support leaders to, to really have these kinds of behaviors? Well, I mean, you, you've embedded a lot of different questions into that one final question. And so one thing I will say to you is I would advocate for, you know, for companies, CEOs, don't bother with the values unless you can live them because it destroys trust. People are looking for it. They see the values on the wall and then they see the behaviors and how people speak and act and it's totally inconsistent. Um, In fact, there was just recent, like in the last 24 hours, I saw statistics that show that more than half of people that go to work every day think that their companies don't live at all, like ever the values that they have on the wall. And a third of workers could even tell you what their values were because they become so diluted by the executive's behavior, right? So if you don't establish values that you can live to, if everybody at the senior table can't go, yes, 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 then don't do it because you undermine trust and trust, as we know, is the cornerstone of leadership. So it's game over, right? Those people are not to be trusted is the worst outcome that you could possibly have. Um, So, the bigger question though is what you asked at the end. And really what it starts with is changing the model for who we hire into management roles. And what we've typically done to use what you just said, we take high performing individual contributors and we say, you have potential to be leader, a manager. So you've done such a great job as an architect or a salesperson or what have you, that we wanna make you the manager of the salespeople or the architects. And then they routinely fail. And why is it? Because the skill set that's required to be a great salesperson or a great architect or a great marine biologist or whatever is entirely different than the mindset and the talent set of somebody who's going to be really effective as a manager. And I tell this story when, in, 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 when I speak about a guy that I'm very familiar with. His name is Bruce Bochy. And 
Bruce Bochy was a backup catcher for the San Diego Padres. I live in San Diego. Anybody who follows baseball knows they're one of the worst mediocre programs. <laughs> never won anything in 50 years, and I've been a fan for many of them. And so it's painful to watch this team. But to be a backup catcher means you're good enough to make the majors, but not any all-star. And Bruce Bochy was that guy. So he played for them for nine years. Um, so he, he, he obviously was was talented enough to play in the major leagues, but he had a very low batting average, didn't hit a lot of home runs. This guy was no star. But where is he today? He just retired as one of the most successful baseball managers of all time. He took in his first year as manager, he took the Padres to the, to the um, World Series. They lost. And the Padres, who had never won anything, thought, well, you didn't win, so they let him go. So he goes up to San Francisco and wins three World Series with them in seven years. He's going to go to the Hall of Fame. So you look at this and you say, well, how is it that somebody who really wasn't a star became a, such a successful manager? And it's because he understood the game. He understood how the game is won and lost. And so he understood that. But he has a special skill set, which is he knows how to assemble teams, congeal teams, and motivate teams right? So he understands enough of the business, but he's not the expert. And so that's kind of the mind shift that we need to make, which is to say, it's not always, in fact, it's very rarely your top individual contributor that goes on to be a great manager. What you need is somebody who's well-rounded, who has the ability to grow and develop other people, and who's selfless enough as in the coaching mentality, which is to say, my job is to help other people. I'm not going to jump in in the ninth inning and make myself the pitcher to win the game. I'm going to help other people get there. And we don't have that mindset in business. And so often we keep promoting the wrong people into management. And then we just kept pretending, you know, basically just running out the same methodology year in and year out. And people are never going to get any better for it. Yes. Such a great example. Um, and also how e ego can sometimes sometimes get involved too, right? And and there's a reason why some salespeople are really good individual contributors. They like to just be super focused on what they need to achieve. They don't want to be helping grow and lead. And it reminds me of a story recently um, to bring in the sports again, um, which is ironic for anybody listening. I don't really pay attention to sports, but uh, Wayne Gretzky, um, Wayne Gretzky. Here we have like one of the best hockey players of all time. Look what happened when he became a coach, right? Everyone assumes because he was such an amazing player, he's going to be phenomenal as a coach. He didn't. And, you know, different skill sets. I think he wasn't necessarily ego-based, but different skill sets that he didn't necessarily um, – wasn't able to get that team to gel as well. So I, I really like where, where you went there. Um, such a great example. I'm curious, Mark, with the work that you've done, you know, there has to be a starting point. So when you start to go in with organizations and, and see the different changes that can be made, um, where, have you start, where have you seen a lot of um, some good results fast when you started to go work with the organization and help them with some of the places they can make some changes in order to create more of these work environments you and I are talking about? Well, um, in your neck of the woods, I don't know if I can name the company, but I'll, de I'll define the company. You'll know it, but... Uh, um, there's a large cable and um, internet company in Canada, and they had been around for many years and had a loose set of values. And they were interested in re-identifying what really would be motivational. So in other words, 
here's our historic culture and here's where we want to go and where can you blend those and so i i came in and actually created new values for them seven new values although a couple of them were very reminiscent of who they had always been and who the employees really wanted to be a part of so it's anchoring into tradition and it's anchoring into where we need to go in the future and something that happened right after we got done with this that i didn't anticipate was that the company realized that much of their technology you know people coming out to your house to put cable and that that doesn't exist as much anymore right you can do it remotely and and a lot of things that people were doing individually you know talking to customer service reps they could go online and do themselves without any human interaction so all of a sudden this company is realizing we are top heavy in people. And so it was this magnificent test of the values because the values were very human and heart oriented. Now you're gonna let people go, right? So that you look at that and you think, that's a major inconsistency and all that work was a waste. But fast forward 18 months later, what that company did was they intentionally said, Every decision that we're going to make in the way we're going to go about this is going to be aligned to those values. So they created a very generous package. They offered it to um, a number of people. They thought that, uh, you know, X number was going to accept this because it was their career. They were going to leave the company. They were going to get a generous package, but you're still not going to have a job after that. So they figured some people would, you know, say, no, I don't want to go. They had a greater number of people than they ever anticipated. And they gave the package to everyone, even though they scaled it through the course of time. But what they ended up with was a company of people that really wanted to be there, all knowing that the people that had left, left on good terms, were treated wonderfully, with great care, great respect, no bad feelings towards the organization under the circumstances, a massive win-win. And I don't know that I've ever seen a company execute so flawlessly when it comes to truly aligning their decisions to it. And I will tell you that I was asked to put this together rather quickly. And so when I went up to pitch it, I sat with the founder of the company and the founder's son, who's the CEO, and then the executive team. And I said, unless you can't commit that these are going to be the values you live to, just send me back to the United States and we'll have a good day, right? Yeah. And they said, nope, this is what we're committed to. So I, I didn't anticipate that question, but it, it actually is just, it, it's one of the most extraordinary leadership choices yeah. that a company has made that I'm familiar with. And it's a thriving company with a large number of people and yeah. huge number of customers. And, you know, stock is doing great. And all of that, I think, anchored on, trust and values that or are oriented towards truly caring about and value and respecting people. And leadership in action, right? It's when the hard choices come, right? Here's an opportunity. There's some people you're going to have to let go. Are you going to do the right thing or are you going to do the wrong thing, right? This is where it's the values in action. Uh, and I was going to ask you about that. So thank you for sharing. So I was going to say, how, what did you do to help them understand? Because they've done the values exercise before. And I remember you saying, if they're gonna just do the values exercise and not live and breathe them, I'm not gonna do it. So I, I love that you said to them, listen, are, are you ready to full on commit to what this means? Because if you're not, 
I'm not your person. I'm not going to do this work for you. And I, and I think that's where that accountability comes in. And I, I even say with some HR leaders, when I'm talking to them around, you know, why are you, what are the conversations that you're having? And they'll say, well, you know, I try, they're not going to listen. I said, no, what does it look like for you to have a courageous conversation and really put the mirror up and say, this is what you're saying, but this is what you're doing. These are the actions. This is what we need to do now. And this is why, and then creating that accountability. And sometimes it's a, it's a courageous conversation. And it's also that HR leader asking themselves, um, do they want to work somewhere that's not in alignment like that, where they're saying one thing, but doing another thing? Well, you know, we have two voices. One voice is what our mind tells us. And the other voice is what our heart tells us. And we have been trained in business to put the heart aside. We don't want any heart in business that's soft and weak and sentimental. It's only going to get you into trouble. But what's interesting about the company that we just talked about is that they listened to their heart, which was, you know, if we're going to do this right, we need to care about the people and the way that it's executed so that we don't harm people. And what happens so often in business is that we just listen to the mind. The mind says, hey, Give those people two weeks, that's all we're going to give them, or four weeks, or a week for every year, and send them on their way, and that's going to be the least cost, you know, it's going to cost us the least amount of money, it's going to drive the greatest return for our shareholders, and what do we care? Those people aren't working here ever again, right? So all, all in favor? Aye. And they don't realize is that the people that are staying in the company just witnessed all of this, and they're like, Oh my God, if they ever get into trouble again, this is what's going to happen to me. And you have killed engagement permanently because the trust is never, never possible. Can you restore that? Right? Simply. So, you know, what I'm saying is, is that the heart is a feeling sensing organ and that people can sense whether you are to be trusted, whether you are to be followed, whether you truly do care about them. Mm -hmm. And if you can demonstrate that to them, we know that feelings and emotions drive human behavior. This is like coming out in spades, you know, with guests that I've had on my own podcast and work that I've, I've, I've researched recently. I mean, the number of research people that are coming up with the same conclusion that we're not the, I think, therefore I am. Right. We're not that rational guy. Yeah. We're, we're all about this. And so if we can just accept that that's what represents our true humanity, that feelings really drive our behavior, then we need to be more thoughtful about how we make people feel. And, and if we make people feel supported and we make them feel valued and we make them feel cared for and that they're growing and that they're doing meaningful work, they, it's just this like instinctive reaction. Their spirits go, okay, I'm where I'm supposed to be and I want to commit to this and I'm going to do great work. Yeah. And it's really how it works. It's instinctual. There's no thought process. People just get up in the morning going, I can't wait to do this. I want to do this. I want to get together with her, with him. I want to work with you. And it's just this massive interest in doing great work because all of their needs are being supported. Beautifully, beautifully articulated, Mark. Um, so I know there's going to be some people who will hear this and they'll say, yeah, I want to start leading more with my heart, but I don't exactly know how to go about doing that because we've been a lot of, of us trained to be in our head. And so this is a brand new skill. It's a, it's tapping into a part of ourselves that we may not have been tapping into for a long time. So where can people start to get more comfortable with leading from the heart? 
it's easy. It's in all of us. This is this is seriously. You don't need to go through a 10-week program in order to lead this way. Actually, I think many people have told me this, so I'm pretty convinced it's true, that all they needed was permission. Right. Because we can we know how the people, like we think about the greatest person that ever managed us, they all do everything that we just described, right? They're, they're, they're caring about us. They want the best for us. They coach us. They teach us. They appreciate us. And so, you know, you just, and they challenge us. They push us a little bit. So it's not like it's all heart. You know, it's, I'm, I'm not trying to tip the teeter-totter to the other side. I'm trying to put them in balance, right? Which is to say, if you're going to assign big goals to people, make sure they know how much you appreciate how hard they're working. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge effort appreciate them right teach them what you know don't hoard what you know and say well it took me four years to learn it so they're gonna have to figure it out on their own be generous say i figured this out let me teach you when people feel that you have their best interests at heart no pun intended they just want to do good work because they're so appreciative they're so grateful and the number of people who manage like this is still very, very small. I mean, when you when I, you ask anybody, anybody listening to this, mm-hmm. you know, how many really great managers have you had in your career? It's generally like one or two out of maybe 10 or 20 different people. And so you look at that and you say, why? Well, we, part of it is because they just weren't inclined to give back to the people. They felt that the job was to extract from people, get as much out of people as possible. And you can still do that. Every team I've ever ever managed was extraordinarily high performing. And I raised the bar much higher than any of my peers did. But the only way that I was able to do that was by giving so much to people that all they needed to do is just focus on their job. They felt safe around me. They knew where they stood. They knew how much I appreciated it. And they could feel that, right? It's a feeling. And so when you have that, you're like, I'm working for the right guy. And interestingly, people beat a path to work for me Mm -hmm. because they knew they would grow, that they would have an opportunity to get promotions and become more, and that we were a high-performing team. And so who doesn't want to be a part of that? Mm -hmm. So it was like anytime I had an opening, and generally the times I had openings was because somebody had been plucked to go on to something bigger. So you just have this self-fulfilling you want to be on that guy's team because if you want your career to grow and take off and do something really great, that's where it's going to happen. And you're going to learn from people around you on how to get there. And so all of a sudden it's like nirvana. And yet we're producing because people are thriving and doing great work. So anybody who conflates this with soft management is missing the boat, you know? And I think I have credibility as a man, but I will tell you, that I paid a woman, so my book, I'm about to come out with my book, and I'm ready to call it Lead from the Heart because it's about the heart, it's about the science, it's about the truth about humanity. And I paid a woman $10,000 to help me strategize on how to get my message out. And she told me, this is what she said, and I'm going to edit it, but anybody listening will know what she said directly. She goes, you will effing fail if you ever, ever again use that expression, Lead from the Heart. And so I had that choice. She goes, call it killer engagement and you'll be just as successful. But that's not the truth. The truth is, this is what drives us. And if we manage to this, 
if we make people feel that we truly care about them as people, which is something Bruce Bochy does like magnificently, look at him in the dugout and how he's talking to people and how he's, you know, you see what's going on there. He's coaching all the time and helping people get better and they just feel safe around him. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And why do you think this personally is so important to you, Mark? Ask me that question again. I'm sorry. Yeah. Why do you think this personally at really creating these more heart-based organizations where people are using these human skills, why do you think that's so important to you? What's driving you? I believe I was put on the earth to share this message and that's going to sound crazy and like a platitude to some people. No, I talk um, about purpose and I absolutely get that. Really, I really do. I mean, I I was raised in a psychologically and emotionally abusive household. My mother died when I was very young. My father was an alcoholic and deeply abused his children, including me. And then he kicked me out of the house right before I was off to college. No financial support, emotional support, never went back for a holiday or a birthday, never had any tuition support or any safety net. And so I went to college because my father used to tell me, you'll never amount to anything in your life. You will be a failure. I mean, over and over thousands and thousands of times. And so I made the decision that if I didn't graduate from college, even under the circumstances of being kicked out with no money and no support, that I would be the failure, he said. So I was determined to really not just get a degree, but ultimately to thrive in that, to do very well. They should have kicked me out of college the first year because I barely went to school and I did really bad work. But ultimately, in the end, I was, you know, I actually did very, very well. But when I started to manage people, I never realized that my childhood had, was influencing me until, I'm not kidding, somebody who had worked for me now 20 years said, you realize you manage people very differently. And I was 43 years old and I started asking her more probing questions and said, well, what is it that I do differently? And when she started lining up the behaviors, not only did I see that everyone around me wasn't managing that way, which never had crossed my mind. I figured everybody's managing the same way. And I'm not really questioning how I'm managing because I'm getting great results. So you just keep doing what you're doing, right? Or refining it. And I realized, oh my God, I'm, I'm managing this way because I wanted to give people what I never got which was safety, which was care, which was love, you know? I mean, seriously, that's what it all boils down to. And because of that, people responded to me. And I'm, you know, I'm a kid out of college, you know, I'm 23, 24 years old, and I'm getting all these jobs and I'm like, they're picking the wrong guy. They don't know what a loser I am. And everything <laughs> I did just turned out to be this great success. So they just kept giving me more and more and more and more. And then I finally figured it out that, these things are what everybody, every human being needs in order to thrive. Yeah. By feeding people positive emotions and giving people everything that I was, I was putting people in their optimal level of performance. I was giving them everything they needed in order to excel. And once I put those pieces together and then did research for a year and a half when I was writing my book and found out that there's heart science now that's emerging that shows that we're not all about the brain, that the heart and the mind are constantly in communication and the heart sends more signals to the brain than the other way around. I'm like, wait a minute, I have massive validation that what I had been doing all along was affecting the hearts of people. 
So when I realized this, you know, and I managed 2,000 stockbrokers, my last position, you know, money hungry, you know, I don't care about anything else than making a sale kind of people. And, you know, what I found was they responded just as well to this. And so because of my upbringing, because of my personal, you know, professional experience of proving that this works and then having all the science behind it, I'm like, this didn't happen by accident. This is what I'm here to do. So that's the answer. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story. As, as we start to end the podcast, what's one piece of advice that you would like to leave with the audience, whether this be, this is CEOs, whether this is an HR leader, whether this is individuals in the organization that might be in some more difficult environments, what would you want to leave with the guests? Um, this is going to seem kind of, out of context, but it's something that's really concerning me right now. Um, I don't think most people know that most employees, so more than 50% of people that work at Google, which has historically been called, you know, the best place to work. They don't, they don't participate any longer in that exercise. So they haven't been the best place to work for the last two years because they don't want to do the paperwork. Um, but it's interesting because since they stopped doing the paperwork, all of a sudden there's some you know, concern that they may not be as great as they used to be. But what they're doing, and they're not the only ones, they're intentionally bringing in people that are contractors rather than employees. So you say, well, why would you do that? Because you can squeeze a contractor. You can go to the contractor and say, I'm not paying that guy more than $90,000, even though you might be paying him 150 to work for you. I'm only going to give them these benefits. So those guys, the people that come in, they're working side by side with employees. And so how does that make those people feel? You feel inferior. You don't get to go to the lunches. You don't get to have the free dry cleaning, all those little subtle reminders. When there's a team meeting, you don't get to go. You're in this, you know, and then they even say, you're, if you come to work as a contractor, you're never going to be allowed to be a worker. So there's no hope you can ever be one of us. And I don't think that that's a, I, I, it's saving them a ton of money, I'm sure. But if we do this enough, you're going to erode psychological and emotional safety in such a considerable way that I think you're going to undermine the success of your companies. I really, truly do. And if you're making billions of dollars, pay people fairly, be generous with people. If you want to cut cut back on the free gyms or the free kombucha, but you know, don't, don't squeeze people because I think if you're on the other side of this, you don't want to go in with your white badge with the guy next to you in the red badge knowing he or she isn't being as paid for doing as the same work or getting the same benefits. So nobody's winning there. And I think you're seeing this, now you're seeing this and I'm highlighting Google as an example of it. I'm not, criticizing Google specifically. I'm just saying it is a very big concern to me when it comes down to the heart that this is going to backfire. It's going to backfire on companies. And I just say, just be fair with people and stop trying to squeeze them. Walmart, for example, had their employees work, their store employees work a full day on Thanksgiving and told them that they were not going to get any overtime pay. So first of all, you take people away from one of the great traditions American traditions, Thanksgiving Day, you say, you have to work, you can't be with your family, can't enjoy that day. 
and then we're just going to pay you what we normally pay you. I don't know what what kind of heartlessness is in existence in a company that make a decision like that when they got you know when they're getting two billion dollars in tax savings every year from the new tax bill and they can't look at that and say why don't we pass some of that along and let everybody win. Yeah. So I think the the big takeaway is if if I win and you lose, yeah. nobody's going to win in the long term. That's really, that's, that, that's my bet. Yes. Everybody who's listening, remember this. And it's all about the choices. Um, Mark, you and I could talk for hours. Uh, we're very passionate about this, but I think you provided tons and tons of great insight um, and specifics around what that looks like. And I love what you've explained with the leading from the heart. We can all do it. So here I am giving everyone permission to start doing it now. And Mark has given you permission as well. Thank you so much for being here today, Mark. My joy. Thank you so very much.